Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. May is Mental Health Awareness Month. The COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated many mental health issues, especially for students. In this week's episode, guest host Professor Andy Trees sits down with Professor Stephen Myers to talk about some of the mental health issues we are facing right now and how we can handle them. Professor Trees comes bearing questions from his students on challenges they are wrestling with. Stephen Myers is a professor of psychology at Roosevelt University. As a clinical psychologist, he primarily focuses on children's well-being and family relationships. Professor Myers' work generally addresses families who encounter adversity because of experiences or challenges in their communities. He also serves as department chair and directs the Initiative for Child and Family Studies. Professor Myers also publishes research on faculty development, effective college teaching, and student well-being. His work has examined classroom conflict, collaborative learning in teaching psychology, teaching assistant development, and incorporating social justice into college teaching. He has won many awards for teaching excellence. Enjoy this informative conversation. Hello, I'm here today with Professor Stephen Myers, Chair of the Psychology Department. Stephen, thanks so much for being here today with me on the podcast. It is my pleasure. I have to say, in looking over uh, your CV, one thing struck me, which is a little off topic, but I really want to ask about it. I did not know that there is an official Stephen Myers Day for the state of Illinois, which I think is a really pretty impressive accomplishment. Uh, can you tell me about that? Sure. So in 2007, I was very honored to receive the uh, Illinois Professor of the Year from the Carnegie Foundation. And there were all sorts of wonderful events and celebrations to mark the achievement. And one of them was the state legislature had enacted a, an official recognition, which became a state-designated day. So <laughs> it, when I was at the reception, uh, it was really fun to wish everybody there the one and only Happy Stephen Myers Day. <laughs> I hope you still force everyone in your life to commemorate that day, that November 29th, in perpetuity, you know, you should get gifts, people should, you know, be extra nice to you, all that sort of stuff. Without a doubt. You know, all I have to do is get everybody else on board. <laughs> all right. Well, the focus, uh, the main focus of today's episode is really about helping students and the Roosevelt community and people at large with their mental health and their well-being. I'm curious Taking the long view, I know you've been teaching Roosevelt for a long time now. Have you noticed changes over time in sort of the typical stresses or problems students have from when you first started? Yeah, I mean, I think Roosevelt is a lot like many other universities in terms of what it contends with with its students. So if you look nationally, 
the rates of psychological challenges in college-age students has been going up over the past several decades. Anybody who works in a university counseling center will be aware of increased demands in terms of uh, sessions. They'll have increased uh, severity of mental health concerns. And the pandemic is like pouring gas on a fire where the levels of stress increase so dramatically on a trend that was already increasing where it's a serious challenge. Uh, what do you think is driving this? I mean, social media is clearly paying a part, uh, but why, like, what, why is this? I keep reading our higher suicide rates, things like that. I mean, why, why is this becoming kind of such a profound mental health crisis, particularly for adolescents and young adults these days? There's the parts we know, and then there's the parts that we're not sure of. The parts we know are a significant increase over the past years in terms of mental illness. The part that we're not entirely sure about is the drivers. There are some aspects that we would think are intuitive, pandemic-related stress, but if you go right before the pandemic, you're still seeing a higher rate of mental illness. A lot of people will talk about how the world has changed for adolescents, and there's certain seismic shifts, especially if you look over the span of decade. The first is social media. Uh, Social media is wonderful in terms of providing connections, crystallizing and showcasing identity, but there's also the insidious effects. The first are the comparatives, where adolescents are oftentimes taking a look at others and view what they're seeing online as the portrayal of reality, and then they use it as a benchmark against which they judge themselves. Even though everybody knows people put a curated version of their lives online, It's one of those things where we know and yet forget at the same time. The second thing is we've seen a step back from those in-person relationships that are so vital to well-being, especially again with the pandemic where we're doing more and more through online teaching, online connections. The role of email replacing conversations is just ubiquitous in all of our lives. So that lack of in-person connections is speculated to be a main driver. People talk about increasing stresses, especially for a subset of adolescents where it's harder to get into college, parents have higher expectations, people have been talking for years about the over-programming of kids, where they have less and less free time. And that free time is really an important part of development that serves adolescents and ultimately college students really well. Other things like sleep and exercise and time outside are very well-documented predictors of well-being. And leading a cloistered life is running in the opposite direction. So if you put all of them together, add pandemic stress on top, you see a lot of the things that are speculated to be the drivers. Yeah, you know, it's funny you talk about uh, sleep and eating. That was something I was going to ask about because my students didn't bring it up, but when I talk to my students casually in and out of class invariably, I would say the majority of them have terrible sleep habits and terrible eating habits, which they, when you ask about it, they freely admit to. I mean, I don't think they, they think they're good, but I mean, I think that I do see that as kind of a really widespread problem among my students that I know from my own experience, you know, bad night's sleep, bad next day. Without a doubt. And people don't give it enough credit or they think it's anecdotal, but there are research studies that show healthy lifestyle behaviors are huge determinants of people's psychological well-being. Getting enough sleep matters a lot. We have a culture that runs counter to that at times. We have a 24-hour 
life opportunity cycle with online living. Uh, there's a lot of fun things to do at night, but if you have to get up in the morning, it just means that college students, no less adults, are trying to do as much on less and less sleep. Mm -hmm. It's a predictor of depression, problems with attention. There's issues in terms of weight regulation mm -hmm. or insufficient sleep. Other correlates of just healthy lifestyle behaviors uh, are really critical to think about. Exercise has been shown to be a strong correlative well-being. Mm -hmm. Time outside in the sun, time outside in green spaces are also really important to track. And again, it's easy to do to stay focused on whatever we have to do at home, look at our computers all day, remain hunched over in ways that are just not in our long-term interest. There you go, students. Everyone listening to this, I think you just received several keys to a happier uh, sense and better well-being, if you can put those into place. Well, uh, okay, Stephen, I have, I conducted an entirely unscientific survey of uh, one of my survey classes uh, about questions they would like to ask you for their own psychological well-being. So let me kick it off with this unsurprising one coming from students as the semester comes to an end. Uh, a lot of them asked about how to deal with stress and anxiety, particularly related to schoolwork and a semester exams, but also more generally about how to deal with that. Most of them say they feel stressed out most of the time. Mm -hmm. And it is hard. So the first thing to be aware of is you have to have appropriate expectations. And if people are thinking they shouldn't be stressed or this should be easy, they feel even worse. Mm. So the first is always know what the environment is in terms of demandingness. Are you on the bunny hill or are you doing black diamond? And this way you can, again, prepare for it to the best extent. So number one, mindset matters. Hmm. The idea of expectations matter and they have to be keyed in. Number two, pace yourself. A lot of times what happens is when things are really anxiety provoking, we try to cope with it by kicking the can. And we engage in distraction, procrastination, hanging out with friends to soothe ourselves. My personal favorite, eating chocolate ice cream. All of these <laughs> That's not things. Medicinal. That's not. <laughs> yeah, it's delicious. It might be fun, but ultimately it means we're going to pay worse later because mm. we're avoiding the anxiety. So there's a lot of anticipatory anxiety. So if we can pace ourselves, it can make a huge difference. So rather than leaving things to the last minute intentionally or because we're in a defensive position, we have to go on offense. Sitting down, writing out plans of mm. what goes where and how to prioritize can make a whole world of difference as well. Other things, taking care of yourself along the way to push yourself very hard at the end to try to persevere without sleep is ultimately going to impair performance and make stress worse. Mm -hmm. So in addition to having a solid plan, self-care has got to be built into all of this. Self-care doesn't only involve things like exercise and sleep and good eating, but it also can have things like putting in small periods of time where you do meditation, where mm -hmm. you do deep breathing, where you do things that are going to calm yourself down because they don't take too long, but they have a disproportional impact. They'll be different for different people. Some people, it will be rewarding yourself with a shorter Netflix show. As long as it doesn't take up too much time, 
Reversions are great to include, but keeping everything on that schedule is really critical. And leaning on others for support is really important. We need to vent. We need to have people distract. We need to be able to provide support to others, which is just a part of realizing that we're connected to others as well. You know, I, I think that uh, self-care advice, I think so many students think, well, I, I don't have time to do that during exams or whatever, but I, you're absolutely right. It doesn't have to be huge blocks of time. Even five or 10 minutes, if it's really effective, I think can really get you feeling better, healthier, lower stress. So I think that's that's great advice. Uh, okay. Related to that, we talked, we touched on social media. A lot of my students freely admit that they're fairly addicted to social media. And if I ask them about it, most of them are willing to say that being on social media often makes them feel worse afterwards. So uh, what advice do you have for students in terms of dealing with A, perhaps being on social media too much and B, dealing with kind of the feelings of you know, whatever you want to call it, comparative envy or whatnot that they have when they spend time on it? Yeah, this is so difficult because it falls into a very large bucket. Mm. Excessive social media goes in the bucket with unhealthy eating habits. Mm-hmm. Goes in the bucket with smoking. It's this idea that I will really focus on shorter term gratification at the expense of a longer term consequence. Mm. And if this goes above and beyond any addictive properties, it's just reinforcement principles. People want the quick hit. It's immediate. It feels great or at least engrossing or easy. But what you really have to think about is, what am I paying for after the fact? I'll give you an example. I love to eat at restaurants. And whenever you eat at restaurants, uh, you're going to overeat because they're not going to give you the small portion. Everything will be larger than you'd probably make at home. And it will not be prepared for most places very healthfully. So I view it as a treat to myself. So I will go to that restaurant. I will try to add in addition to whatever I'm having, I will get that sort of safety appetizer or meal because, you know, what if I don't really love the thing I ordered? It's a treat. I should get another thing on top. So I'm having a field day with eating all of this. And then the part I really don't focus on is how do I feel three hours later, Mm. which is excessively full. (laughs) I will not be feeling any of that great excitement or appreciating the deliciousness uh, after the fact. I'll just feel gross. The thing that I have to remind myself from the get-go is, remember what that gross feeling is at the point of consumption. It's being cognizant of it. And a lot of the research shows that you have to give the person a visualized sense of future self. Hmm. So a while ago, a retirement platform, I believe it was Merrill Lynch, would take a picture of you in present form, would then have a filter that ages you, and then you'd have an old version of yourself that would become your profile pic. So you can't look at current day Andy, you'd look at 72-year-old Andy. And essentially they were saying, help 72-year-old Andy out. Help him have a good retirement. Without a doubt. So do you want him to go hungry? No. So put money in your retirement account. Help old Andy out. It's the same thing for students. You really have to focus on not the short-term connection, not the immediate FOMO, but what is it like? You write it down, you portray it, you make it seem more real, and you put it right in front of your face. 
And that makes it more vivid. And those are the things that visualizing the desired future or visualizing the future you don't want and using that as a deterrent that has to be made present so that it becomes more of a motivator. Oh, that's great. I'm going to start thinking about future Andy more. Help him out. I thought this next question, I didn't know if I was going to ask you because at the time I was doing the poll, I thought, oh, this is never going to be relevant. But it's still in the 30s and I'm looking out on the gray, windswept uh, Chicago landscape. One of my students asked how to deal with SAD, seasonal affective disorder, with these long gray winters, which we're sort of still in the tail end of here. Oh, it's brutal. This is not one of the selling points of Chicago. (laughs) We become much more attractive in another month. We do have gray days. It is hard. You always have to differentiate how bad it is. And that's the trick. And we'll be talking a good amount about this, I'm sure, as the conversation progresses. But some people have challenges or adversities, and some people are looking at clinically significant disorders. Mm. It's on a continuum, and it's really good to be aware of that. Now, if it's on the modest end, it's an impediment, it's hard, but it's not completely running your life, there are things that people could do. Some people will have a light box that they will purchase, or they will use whatever lights they have in their home Mm -hmm. to keep bright. That works. Some people will be more cognizant to sleep with their shades open, so in the morning, they get they can capitalize on early morning sunshine, which is fortunately coming back uh, this time of the year. So the challenge on all of this is to change the things you can. People will do an offset, and they'll do things like uh, increasing exercise, increasing socialization, increasing mm-hmm. interaction and pleasant activities. All of this is intended to compensate for the lack of light that we get. There will be a subset of people who will have clinically significant depressive symptoms. And for those folks, clearly it's a different game. Professional assistance will become much more important where they'll be thinking about therapy, they'll be thinking about medication, they'll be using the more intensive interventions to compensate for the full scale and scope of their symptoms. That actually leads me to my next question because some of the students asked about depression and more serious thoughts. And so I'm wondering, how does a student or any person think about when it becomes serious enough that they should seek professional help and and try to deal with some of these things in a more systematic way? Yeah, it's tricky because oftentimes as the individual, you don't know when you cross the line. I'll give you the metrics that therapists will use. We'll always think about severity, frequency, and duration. Mm -hmm. Those are our three. How bad is it? How often does it occur? And when it's occurring, how long does it last? Hmm. A lot of people could tolerate less intense, shorter experiences of difficulty, but then you'll have some people where it feels continuous and it's immobilizing. Mm -hmm. So the whole process becomes with the gut check. It begins with thinking, all right, how bad is this? And sometimes we can self-soothe. Sometimes we can use our coping strategies. Sometimes we can wait things out, but at the other end, oftentimes a line can be crossed. And in those cases, we start the process of maybe talking to other people. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when we share what we're going through, our friends, our family will say, that that just doesn't sound right. That sounds worse. And, you know, this oftentimes happens with health concerns. Say you have a stomach ache that's recurrent. At some point, somebody will say, hmm. 
you should you should really have that checked out. Mm-hmm. We can use people who we trust to gauge severity as well. But when we're at the point of action, it becomes time to have a trained professional do an assessment, figure out the scope and scale, mm-hmm. give the accurate diagnosis, and present the person with options so that they can choose the best course of action that makes the most sense for them. For a Roosevelt student who may be at that point, what what would be the appropriate next steps to take within the university setting to get some help? Mm-hmm. The university is currently partnering with Timely Care. So this is an online-based teletherapy platform that's free for students. Mm-hmm. Like many things, some people have heard about what the university offers and some people really don't know. There's also the logistical barriers to starting. So even when we know about things, we just have to make the time for it and go through the steps of enrolling in the portal and seeking care. Again, many people know that we have a fitness center in the dorm. However, there's that transition from knowing what the thing is and even Mm -hmm. like looking in the room and seeing it to actually using it. So people have to be able to make that investment. But here's the rub. When we are feeling depressed or anxious, oftentimes it's hard to marshal our energy. So we have to understand some things require that initial push to break inertia, and then we can benefit from when we have that relationship, the appointments are scheduled, we feel that there's that expectancy for us to appear for the appointment that we scheduled, Mm -hmm. so that the help can actually be realized. Uh, You know, it's gotten better, but I feel like one of the other roadblocks that some people have when they think about getting help is there's still a stigma attached to receiving any sort of mental help, mental health assistance, those kind of things. What would you say to people like that who are like, oh, no, you know, they have that, you know, I can can just fix it myself. I can just wait it out. I can just tough it out. It'll be fine. Yeah. There's different ways of thinking about it. I mean, the first pass is reminiscent of what we talked about before. Are you really struggling at a clinically significant level? If you want to defer care and if it's lower intensity, lower frequency, lower duration, I think the person has greater discretion. However, I'm assuming that we're talking about somebody who has crossed that line mm-hmm. and the stigma becomes something that's an impediment. A couple things to think about. Number one, there are things that other people can do for us, and then there are the things that only we can do for ourselves. It's really good to embrace that idea because that mm-hmm. will prompt us for all sorts of healthy behaviors, that if we don't step forward to have our needs met, I think a sad reality is our needs will not be met. Hmm. So to embrace that empowerment, that there are things that we have to do for ourselves. The second thing to understand is nobody will know. You know, stigma, it is interesting because in some part it's based on this idea that we will be found out and people will judge us. Mm -hmm. But what happens if nobody finds out? So even if you have that feeling of stigma, then ultimately there's that mitigating fact that nobody knows because it's designed to be confidential. And if it's provided for free, your insurance doesn't even know about it. Your parents don't even know about it. That's a great point. I think this would go on under the heading of many of the things that people do in their ordinary lives that they actually choose to keep private. (laughs) Private is valid. It is good. It is healthy. And therapy can become one of it. There's the third level, which is at some point we have to think, I don't care what the world thinks. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's about psychotherapy. Maybe it's about how we dress. Maybe it's about how we act. 
there's that coming into ourselves to say, I really need to focus on what I think as opposed to what others think. It's harder in college because this is the late end of adolescence. Parents are still very important. A lot of our students live at home. Others are players who judge us. But at some point, the happiest people will be using their self-assessments of are they leading a worthwhile life or are they making a good choice? And it's really good to be able to lean into that. Mm-hmm. I think that's, yeah, that's great. I, you're absolutely right as far as the stigma. It can all remain private, right? I mean, unlike social media, what it tells us, we do not have to share every aspect of our lives all the time. Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, about trauma, and I know some of my students have gone through some very traumatic things, and they asked about recovering from that. How do you how do you bounce back after you've gone through a really hard experience? Yeah, and you know it really is striking the number of people who have experienced some form of trauma, and trauma does go on a scale. There are things that are difficult, things that are somewhat traumatic and things that are highly traumatic. However, when the trauma system in our bodies is activated, we see similar responses. We see people experience mood dysregulation. They become irritable or triggered or worried by things that are reminiscent. We see hypervigilance where they're just always keyed up. And it's this idea that if you've experienced threat, you're always on the lookout Mm -hmm. or what might be around the corner. There is this systematic misinterpretation of threat where just imagine somebody who has PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, who is returning from a battlefield and they've heard and experienced artillery fire and gunfire, but now they hear a car backfire. Mm -hmm. The car backfiring is benign. It's not going to hurt you. It's loud, but they can't encode it like that. They encode it as if they're really back in that highly dangerous situation. Mm It has you know, a basis in evolution, once bitten, twice shy, this idea that if there is something that's going to get you, pay close attention to it. But Mm -hmm. that system is hijacked and it's always on being on alert. A couple of things to keep in mind. Number one, education about what the trauma mechanism is, is important. I always believe educate people. Mm -hmm. It's not only in my role as a professor at the university, it's in my role as a clinician. It's this idea that everybody will benefit if they can get an owner's manual on themselves. If they can understand the biology behind what they're experiencing, the psychology on what they're experiencing, or even the broader social context based on what they're experiencing, it starts the process of understanding and gaining control. We need language to describe things. You know, we move from I feel horrible to now I can describe exactly what's going on and why it's going on that makes me feel horrible, which then pivots into doing things about it. Mm -hmm. There's those healthy lifestyle behaviors that can help people. But if it is significant trauma, we owe it to ourselves to get help. Psychologists, social workers, counselors, we know how to deal with trauma in terms of interventions that have been shown to work. Mm -hmm. There are skills that can be put in place. So again, this is where I lean into this idea of doing what it takes to be okay by seeking out care. You're listening to And Justice For All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University. Related to that, you know, in terms of the, the, the kind of more serious issues that students struggle with. So I know uh, 
they didn't talk about it, but I know this is true in any student population. Their uh, body image issues, their eating disorders, their substance abuse issues, there's issues of getting comfortable with your sexuality and gender and your identity, if that's changing. So uh, do you have any general advice for people going through something like that and how to, you know, deal with that and and come to terms with it and, and manage it and, and get it under control? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, there are no easy answers, but I'll tell you what is generally best practice. You know, I always, you know, I'm the sort of psychologist who believes in doing whatever it takes to get the greatest results in the shortest period of time. I'm like a that. Very practical sort of person. Some people might call that superficial. Uh, I call it quick action. So again, that's my own bias. So you will get different answers from different mental health professionals, but there are things that make sense. Number one, acknowledging that we're sometimes skiing on the Black Diamond Hill. This is hard, and this ties into what we were talking about at the beginning. Why is it that mental health problems are more prevalent on college campuses and in adolescence? The world has changed and not always for the better. I think for many people, looking at, for example, what COVID did to us above and beyond the disease, mm-hmm. it did not make us more compassionate as a society. If you talk to anybody right now who does front-end customer service, mm-hmm. they will tell you that they are maltreated by customers all the time. I was at the doctor's office yesterday. There was a sign up for the woman who was checking me in saying, be patient, be kind. I am here to help you. So the person who is sitting there simply checking in patients at the doctor's office had to put a large reminder up not to be maltreated. Mm -hmm. We've become harsher as a society in many ways. And I think this is, again, feeding into a lot of what our students are contending with. The world is not an easier place, and all sorts of mental health issues are increasing in terms of scale and scope. So number one, to understand it's not a personal thing. A lot of uh, distress is really undergirded by this feeling of personal failure. Mm. So when we have an expectation, whether it's how to prepare for finals or what's occurring in society or what the pressures or comparatives of social media pose, that it is just harder to navigate, we could be kinder to ourselves. We can be more reasonable in terms of how we attribute our distress. Is it our fault or is it that I'm on a more difficult course? It's good to be able to do that in a rational sort of way. Second thing, we need our people. Regardless of the adversity, Life is better when we are surrounded by supportive family, supportive friends, supportive significant others. We have to think sometimes, am I cultivating those relationships? Mm -hmm. Because social support that comes from outside is an important counterbalance to those internal coping skills. So a lot of the things we struggle with is seeking parity. On our left hand, it's what stresses and strains do we have? On our right hand, What coping and support mechanisms do we have to serve as a balance? Mm -hmm. Being intentional about developing the healthy lifestyle behaviors become critical. Seeking out professional assistance and support. Differentiating between something that's just a sprint, like finals period. Everybody gets through it. Uh, For professors, we know there's there's a beginning, middle, and an end. And then we hit the reset button for our next semester, new set of students, and we see a beginning, middle, and end. There are some challenges that are chronic and phasic, so we know we're just sprinting, Mm -hmm. and in other cases, we're running the marathon. 
If the marathon is distressing because of anxiety, because of issues of substance use, because of issues of depression, irritability, get help. I would love to say there's the quick fix. I'll tell you one right now, but invariably some things are too large to do it as a do-it-yourself project. Mm-hmm. Want to hear a quick fix? Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you one piece of research which I find striking. Doing deep breathing for people who are anxious. Does deep breathing, slow inhale, slow exhale, for two 15-minute periods a day, 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes in the evening, is shown to be two-thirds as effective as an entire course of psychotherapy. Wow. That is striking, that the benefits of an entire therapeutic sequence compared to deep breathing is about two-thirds. That's incredible. It's incredible. The trouble is people oftentimes won't do it, Mm -hmm. just like they won't eat well, just like they won't exercise, just like they won't get that extra hour of sleep. So this is why sometimes that external accountability makes all the difference. Again, deep breathing does not solve all of people's problems. But a lot of the ones in terms of worry and mood can be significantly increased by literally 30 minutes of deep, relaxing breathing. Slow in, slow out, and there are a lot of apps that'll be like breathing pacers. The wonderful thing I like about it is it's really easy to learn. Mm-hmm. I'll give you another example that's very effective, uh, but has a, it has a less forgiving learning curve. Meditation. There are all sorts of meditation apps. However, before people experience the benefits of meditation, they've got to have a certain amount of practice at mm-hmm. it. So again, this is a do-it-yourself intervention that you can have with a free app as long as you're sufficiently patient. Will it fix having uh, trauma and PTSD? No. Will it blunt a lot of the anxiety that people experience? Yes. And it's even on sale. I'll give you an example of that one. (laughs) That 30 minutes that I was talking about of deep breathing is for people who have clinically significant levels of anxiety. If you have a more routine level of anxiety where you wouldn't see a psychologist for, 15 minutes is enough to produce a change. That's fantastic. 15 minutes in your bed in the morning, at night, little break from work, much more effective than a little Netflix oasis. I think as soon as I uh, get off this podcast, I'm going to go do some deep breathing. I think that sounds like the, the easiest advice I've ever received to follow. Yeah. And again, two thirds as effective as a course of psychotherapy. The impact is, is very, very significant. That's amazing. I, I'm glad you mentioned COVID because I know we all are still dealing with it. I know you've thought about it, written about it, talked about it. I'm guessing a lot of people feel like I do where, at the, uh, you know, you feel like it's just going to be something we have to learn to live with. In some ways, I'm tired of dealing with it, just want to ignore it. But at other times, I find myself in situations where I feel anxious because suddenly I'm a crowded elevator and no one's wearing a mask. And I haven't been in that situation in like two plus years and it feels unsafe. So I'm curious what advice you have for people like me who are sort of still dealing with these kind of COVID anxieties and COVID fatigue. Yeah, these are real. And I don't think the idea that it's all better is real consolation. Just because I say something is all gone doesn't mean it's all gone. Uh, We've moved the goalposts in terms of warning levels. The CDC is using different uh, metrics to provide its guidance. There is definitely a lot of COVID fatigue. 
There's also individual differences in terms of risk. The person who is otherwise young and healthy and living on their own is not in the same position as the person who's immunocompromised Mm -hmm. or the person who has a young child who is ineligible for vaccination or who's caretaking for an older parent or grandparents. So we've got to understand a couple things. Number one, getting an all clear does not mean it's all clear. Hmm. It could mean it's better. It could mean we have different understandings, but it does involve a certain amount of risk. Number two, my risk is not your risk, which is not the person who is standing next to us in the elevator. Everybody will have to have an individualized risk profile Mm -hmm. depending on their biology, as well as their risk tolerance psychologically that will yield different answers. Number three, it's more than just biological threat. The image that I'm using when I'm speaking to others about this is having a COVID backpack. And I'm very intentional in terms of choosing this metaphor, because if you've ever had a heavy backpack, you realize you simply can't walk as far or as fast. It's a weight. There's other things that I think about this metaphor that are very apt too. Our hands are free when we're wearing a backpack. So we might not necessarily realize it other than the weight because we can move about. You can pick things up. You can press buttons on the elevator. It's not necessarily something that's occupying your hands. So COVID in many ways is a persistent weight. We're wearing it throughout the day. We might think it's all better because we can move our hands, but we're still having the weight. The other thing is sometimes when you carry a weight long enough, we kind of take it for granted. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's an interesting difference on, say, how I navigate 10 pounds. So I'm carrying an extra 10 pounds from COVID right now. When I'm walking about, I don't feel 10 pounds heavier. But if I were to go into my gym and put a five-pound weight in one hand and a five-pound weight in the other hand and walk around, I would certainly notice that 10 pounds. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? I'm still 10 pounds heavier. That is not uh, under debate at all. I can measure myself on the scale. I just don't feel 10 pounds heavier in terms of moving about. I'm carrying the weight in my backpack when we're coming back to COVID, but I'm not necessarily as cognizant. And that weight is creating a drain on all of us because it's not just biology, it's psychology, it's sociology. The landscape has changed. The discussions have changed. The stresses has changed. The decision-making process of what is safe, what is not safe. Am I doing something that's going to get me infected? Am I not? Is it safe now? All of that is continual burden on us Mm -hmm. that weighs. So it's good to realize it's not a you thing. It's not a me thing. It's an us thing. It's good to realize that some parts we are aware about, but some parts have actually become subconscious because we've been experiencing them so long. It's also good to know that we will have individually different answers, and that is okay. When I go to my gym, I am the, I'm one of two people wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. Everybody else is not. Am I doing something right or wrong? I honestly don't know. It's a well-ventilated space. Uh, people are not on top of each other, but I'm concerned about my health to make sure that I am able to attend my daughter's college graduation in two weeks mm-hmm. and don't want to miss out on it. So yeah. I'm eyes on the prize. But I can again, I appreciate that people will come to different answers based on their own circumstances.
Well, and it's funny, it, it really does. The, and the answer can change, even though the context may be similar. I mean, there have been times where I haven't worn a mask in situations because for whatever reason, it seemed fine. But yesterday I'm, I'm you know, on the train and they've changed the rules. Now you don't have to wear a mask, but I'm used to wearing one. So there I'm like, well, I'm going to wear the mask. I've been wearing it. I'm used to wearing it. No one else is wearing it. I just feel as good to wear it now. Yeah. And you know, the funny thing is we misinterpret threat. You know, th- we think that a stranger is going to be more likely to infect us because they don't right. care about us. Or, or we just don't know where they've been or anything about them. Sure. But when we meet with a colleague in our office, mm-hmm. we think, oh, that person's a good guy. They're safe like me. They're not going to infect me. No mask for me. But it may be that the colleague or the friend or the family member is actually at a higher risk of mm-hmm. having COVID compared to the person we're sitting next to uh, on the L. Yeah. Well, I'm going to shift focus a little bit because I know your expertise is in many, many areas, but one of them is children's well-being and family relationships. So we're all children. We're all in families. This is in some ways a self-interested question, but I'm curious. So shifting to families, what advice? So as a parent who wants a happy child and who wants a, a happy family life where people enjoy their time together, what advice do you have to basically have a, a, a happier family life with your siblings and parents and children? COVID-related or in general? Just in general. It can be COVID-related, or but but I'm just curious in general. Yeah, I'll tell you. Uh, there are things that they'll sound obvious, but people don't do. And I think that is one of the most striking revelations about anybody who studies human behavior. Just because you've heard it, just because everybody knows it, doesn't mean you do it. Number one. Where are you spending your time? Mm -hmm. I think everybody is in a situation where there's always competing goods and competing demands. People might be investing their time with their kids or with their significant others or with work or with hobbies or with other obligations. If you were really taking an inventory of how you spent every hour of your day, and people don't do this because it's a pain in the neck, but literally log it out on an hourly basis and then compare it ratio-wise to your values and your priorities, I would wager that you do not see similar ratios. Hmm. People will invariably say, my family is the most important thing in my life. And I believe they believe that. I believe that's true in their heart. And if that were the case, how would you expect people to allocate time, especially when it's discretionary? The goal is to be as consistent or as congruent. Some people will actually say my work is more important than my family. Um, Maybe it's providing financially, and that is a value without a doubt as well. But oftentimes we see this disconnect. Second thing is what is our role with our family? It's not so straightforward what the role of a parent is. Because there's competing demands. And psychologists have shown that when you look at parenting, there are two parts that are very important. Part number one is the warmth, which is that love and care and connection and time and interest. And the other part is the limit setting. And the limit setting is the control and disciplining and making sure they do their homework and making their beds (laughs) and not smashing their sibling in the face because they're frustrated with something. That's a very important part of parenting as well. But what happens is 
parents can devote time to family, but it becomes task oriented times. We got to get something done. I got to make sure I'm doing your, you know, for a younger kid, uh, you're doing your homework. All right, I'm going to sit down at the table here. I'm going to, I'm going to do my email. You're going to do your homework and I'm going to watch you. And if I see you messing around, I'm going to say, get back to your homework. Uh, is that quality time? It's necessary, but it's not quality time. Mm-hmm. I've not met very many parents who say, you know what my favorite part of parenting is? <laughs> Making sure my kid does his homework. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. So if you value something, it's good to, number one, clearly articulate that as a value. Mm-hmm. Good to know what's important because it's not always so easy. Number two, compare it against the time you're spending. Are you spending the time with your loved ones? Number three, are you spending the right time with your loved ones? Mm-hmm. Is it task-oriented or relationship-oriented? And if it's something that's relationship-oriented that you want to cultivate, be intentional about it. Relationship enhancement won't happen by accident. Mm-hmm. These things have to be planned out. And it's very unfortunate because we think that somehow the good stuff will just emerge organically. Sometimes it does, but time is in short supply and it's precious. Mm-hmm. If you want something, some things are just the things that you're the only one who can do for you. Lean into it, plan it, make it happen. Hmm. That's great advice. We're just about out of time, but I do, you've given a lot of great advice. So I'm going to put you on the spot here. If you were going to boil it all down and to your average student or faculty member or community member who is just wanting some sort of keys to feeling better, what would you, what would be your essential uh, top five list of mental and physical well-being? You got it. All right. Number one, gut check. Know where you stand. It's easy to just be going about living our lives and not realizing how bad it's gotten or flip side, what we should be grateful for. Mm-hmm. So it's always good to know where you stand. Self-reflection and self-insight is a precious and necessary commodity. Number two, cultivate your coping mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Regardless of stress level, you have to make sure your coping can counterbalance the stresses. If you have a lot of stresses, you need more on the coping side. Coping comes in two flavors. There's the individual things in terms of things like deep breathing, sleep, or anything that we can do for ourselves, making sure we have the right mindset. And it also comes from leaning into others. Those relationships that we have are very important. Number three, seek professional help if needed. Hmm. If it crosses that line into clinically significant territory, it's no longer a do-it-yourself project. There are trained people out there who are lined up to help. If you're a university student, we've got you through timely care. If that's not the case in terms of where you're at or who you are, there are people in the community at all price points. Some will be insurance. Some will be provided in subsidized ways. Seek out help if needed. Mm -hmm. Number four, the idea of healthy lifestyle behaviors. These are good for you, for me, and for everybody. Are we sleeping? Are we eating? Are we consuming social media excessively? Are we spending time in the sun or are we just under fluorescent lights or ring lights for our Zoom consults with people? So doing those healthy lifestyle behaviors matters a lot. Last one, intentionality. Certain things will just come our ways and will fall in our laps and we celebrate. 
Sometimes the world cooperates. One of my favorite newer terms is manifesting. It's people saying something, hoping something, and all of a sudden the world obliges us and it falls in our lap. I love it. I wish it worked that way all the time, <laughs> but unfortunately it does not. Sometimes we have to be intentional. Intentionality, whether it's students studying for a final, whether it's somebody experiencing a clinically significant challenge, whether it's contending with COVID, whether it is not eating as much chocolate ice cream, we need a plan. The plan doesn't have to be amazingly comprehensive. It could be something that we just write out in a couple sentences and put in front of our faces. And that plan will serve as a reminder and inspiration and it'll scaffold. Plans are important because once we say we have a goal, we put it in front of our eyes, we make it public, we are so much more likely to deliver on it. Whether it is the plan to do deep breathing for 15 minutes twice a day, whether it is the plan to start our prep for our final exams today and do two hours rather than to pull all-nighters when it comes to final week. So it's this idea of being thoughtful and committed can make all the difference in the world. Stephen, thank you. That has been some fantastic advice. I, I, when I get off, I'm going to go do some deep breathing and I'm going to make sure, because I think there's some sunshine today, I'm going to make sure I go out in the sunshine for at least a few minutes today. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. It's been a pleasure talking with you. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening.